21. Now I start at verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains and those who are in the midst of the city must leave. And those who are in the country must not enter the city. Because these are days of vengeance. So that all things which are written will be fulfilled. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. For there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Amen. Now, congregation, you'll remember that this uh, passage takes place uh, at originally at the temple. Matthew's account of these events says that after Jesus said that the temple was going to be destroyed. Remember, they were watching people put money in the offering and he explained that the widow with two silver coin, two copper coins put in the most. The disciples began to comment on how beautiful everything looked. The temple and its ornate architecture and structures uh, were impressive. Probably the greatest building that men from Galilee had ever seen. Uh, But Jesus then gives an astounding prophecy that the temple would be destroyed. Not one stone would be left on top of another. You get the sense, reading a little bit into the passage, that the disciples have a stunned silence. Because it's not, according to Matthew's uh, version, it's not until they get over outside of the city to the garden again that they ask the question, When is this going to happen and what's going to be the sign of your coming? So they were probably were thinking on this. One wonders if they were even walking in silence from the temple to the garden, uh, thinking about the things they had just heard from Jesus. So what does Jesus say in answer to their question? When are these things going to take place and what's the sign? Remember, Jesus prefaces his answer with three thoughts, and we, this is just by review. Number one, don't lose your theology. Many false messiahs were going to show up. Number two, don't panic, because the headlines in the news on CNN are going to remain the same. There are going to be wars and rumors of wars and famine and natural disasters, and that's just part and parcel of things to come. And then he said that before uh, the destruction of Jerusalem, the early church was going to be persecuted. And that's what we talked about last week, you'll remember. We did the theme of persecution. And he said that they will persecute you. They, They will, even friends and close family members are going to turn on you and turn against you. And and you will be arrested and you'll go before various civil magistrates and you'll have an opportunity to testify on my behalf. While this is taking place, 
Then we come now to this section that we read today. So all that I've explained is what we've previously covered. Now we come uh, to what Jesus says about the destruction of Jerusalem. And I'm going to divide this into three parts for us this morning. First of all, Jesus gives us the sign of Jerusalem's destruction in verse 20. The sign of Jerusalem's destruction in verse 20. Number two, he then gives them a command of what they're supposed to do. Namely, they are to flee from the city and its environs in verse 21 and verse 23. Verse 21, skipping 22 for a moment and verse 23. And then thirdly, that this is going to come about as a judgment of God. This is a divine punishment and retribution. Verses 22 and 24. So. These three thoughts, number one, the sign of Jerusalem's destruction in verse 20, the command to flee 21 to 20, 21 and 23. And then that this is a judgment, a theological interpretation of this event. It is a divine judgment of God against the the people of God for their sin. That's in verse 22 and 24. Those are our three thoughts this morning. Now, if you have your Bible with you, let's look together at the first verse That we covered, verse 20, the sign of Jerusalem's destruction. Here, Luke records for us these words. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. Now, that is the sign. What is the sign? The surrounding of the holy city. By armies. Now, in Luke's account here, Jesus does not specify who those armies are. But you probably didn't have to be a prophet to guess who it would be. It would be, of course, the greatest empire of its day, the Roman army. So the destruction of Jerusalem, uh, we have to understand, is not without precedent. Now, while this is an astounding Prophecy, and it stunned seemingly the disciples. This is not the first time that this has happened. There, have, there has been another occasion, you'll remember from the Old Testament, where God destroyed the city of Jerusalem previously. We see it uh, especially in the preaching of Jeremiah. You'll remember Jeremiah uh, spoke called the weeping prophet, boys and girls. Remember Jeremiah's the weeping prophet because he is sad about what is happening. God is bringing a judgment. The people's hearts are hardened and they're not repenting. Um, We know that even in the covenant that God makes with the nation of Israel, that this was always a possibility. So, for example, look at Deuteronomy chapter 28, when God made the covenant uh, with the people of God through Moses, um, we read the following. For example, chapter 28 and verse 15. Moses said to the people of God long ago, but it shall come about if you do not obey the Lord your God to observe, to do all his commandments and his statutes with which I charge you today, that all these curses will come upon you. And then he starts listing uh, the various curses 
there. Cursed shall you be in the city. Cursed shall you be in the country. And then he goes on and talks about their food and their health and their productivity and their crops and their animals and their children and etc. But then he goes on and he, he warns the people that if they go after other gods, that God would see to it that they are removed from the land. That was one of the conditions of the covenant. If they would obey the Lord, God would bring blessings. But if they violated the covenant by going after other gods, then God would see to it that they would be brought into captivity. You can see that in 28 verse 41. You shall have sons and daughters, but they will not be yours, for they will go into captivity. Um, and it goes on. Uh, the Lord, verse 49, the Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth. As the eagle swoops down, a nation whose language you shall not understand, so they're foreigners. A nation of fierce countenance, certainly true of the Romans, who will have no respect for the old, nor show favor to the young. Uh, moreover, it shall eat the offspring of your herd and the produce of your ground until you are destroyed. Who also leave you, leaves you no grain, new wine or oil, nor the increase of your herd or the young of your flock until they have caused you to perish. It shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout your land. And it shall besiege you in all your towns throughout your land. And, and you can go on and it talks about the judgment. So clearly this was a condition of the covenant. If they disobeyed, God would bring even foreigners, even people who worshipped and served other gods, and he would use them as a chastening rod upon his own people. Now, this, of course, was fulfilled prior to Jesus's time in 586 B.C. through the what we call the Babylonian captivity. King Nebuchadnezzar, boys and girls, you're familiar with that king and his name, King Nebuchadnezzar, comes. And what does he do? In 586 B.C., he surrounds the city of Jerusalem because of the people's disobedience and he destroys it. So, for example, in Second Kings, if you have your Bible, Second Kings chapter 25, we read about Nebuchadnezzar coming. In the ninth year of his reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came. He, and now listen to this, all his army against Jerusalem, camped against it, and built a siege wall around it. So the city was under siege until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. I'll skip on down uh, to verse 8. Now on the seventh day of the fifth month, which was the nineteenth year of King Nebuchadnezzar, King of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He burned the house of the Lord. So the house that Solomon built. Remember that the house that Jesus is standing in is not exactly the same identical one that Solomon built, because that one is destroyed right here in this chapter by King Nebuchadnezzar. He burned the house of the Lord, the king's house, 
and all the houses of Jerusalem, even the great house, he burned with fire. So all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. Then the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon and the rest of the people, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried away into exile. And it goes on and it talks about all the pillars and utensils and the labor and all the things that are associated with the temple go into captivity. In Second Chronicles chapter 36, we also see that the chronicler notes the destruction of Jerusalem in that chapter. Second Chronicles 36 verse 15. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by his messengers. That is, God would send his prophets and they would preach the word. Because, and notice here, because he had compassion on his people. He kept preaching to them. Preaching is a, is a form of compassion. And, but they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his words and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, until there was no remedy. Therefore, he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, that's the Babylonians, who slew their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary. So Nebuchadnezzar even had no regard when people sought refuge in a house of worship. He had them killed even in there and had no compassion on young man or virgin Old man or infirm killed the kids, killed the old men. He gave them all into his hand. All the articles of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king and of his officers. He brought them all to Babylon. Then he burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its fortified buildings with fire and destroyed all its valuable articles. To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. And all the days of its desolation it kept Sabbath until 70 years were complete. And then you could read, we won't read it, but the book of Lamentations. After Jeremiah you have the book of Lamentations. How lonely does the city sit like a, like a widow up, up on the hill. We see that uh, Jeremiah... Uh, cries out about the destruction of Jerusalem. So, coming back to our text, Jesus says to his disciples, not one stone will be left another on another at this temple. What Jesus was saying essentially was this, that the Jews in his own day were filling up their own apostasy, their own rejection Think with me for just a moment. If God in his compassion sent prophets to the people to preach the word of God to them and they rejected that word. How much more if God sends his only begotten son, the very word of God incarnate and they reject him. This is why these two things are tied together. It is the rejection of Christ. As John says in his prologue that he came unto his own and his own did not receive him. It is for the rejection of Christ 
the crucifixion of the Son of God for which the people of God will be destroyed in judgment. There are many in Jesus' day, just as there were in Jeremiah's day, who believed that God would never do such a thing to the holy city. That somehow God would save Jerusalem just as he did in the days of Hezekiah. When the Assyrians were encamped around the walls of Jerusalem and God sent a holy angel to destroy the 185,000 Assyrians and save the city from a great destruction. So they thought also God would do so again. But what Jesus here is doing as a prophet is he is really helping the early church in his compassion. He is telling the early church that they are not to be ignorant. Who is he explaining this to? He is telling it to his own disciples, isn't he? That the disciples also might, once the spirit comes, begin to teach and preach that these things are going to come to pass. Remember, Jesus is a prophet as well as a priest and a king. And so this is one of his prophecies. So that the church was not to be ignorant of the coming historical event. It was a mercy of God for Jesus to utter this prophecy in order that God's elect might be saved from the judgment that would come upon the wicked. Just as it was when God rescued Lot out of Sodom and Gomorrah before he brought the destruction upon that city. Here, Jesus here is warning his own people and that those who heed this warning would be saved from that destruction. And what are we to take away by way of applications? Well, I'll give you a couple here. And then I want to save some others for later in the message. First of all, let's just state this. The New Testament teaches that there is another fiery judgment and final judgment that is coming upon all mankind. That is, the destruction of Jerusalem historically should remind us that no matter what happens historically in our day and in our future, We should not be ignorant of this reality, which Jesus has also said that there is even a greater day of judgment coming with even far greater implications. That is, God is going to judge the world. Injustice and wrath and judgment against all unrighteousness, and therefore it's incumbent upon us as believers united to Jesus Christ not to make an alliance with this world. That is under the judgment of God. We are to be in this world, but we are not to be motivated by it. We should live as people who are prepared for a day of judgment. Another thing I would say about this is the following. And that is to ask the question, if God brought judgments upon the holy city of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. And then later in A.D. 70, a generation after Jesus and his disciples Does God bring judgments historically on cities today? Or to put it another way, was the fall of Rome later a judgment of God? Was the burning of Atlanta in 1865 a judgment of God? What about in 1945, the cities of Nagasaki and Hiroshima? Was Dresden a judgment of God? Maybe even closer to our time when Hurricane Katrina came and did such devastating things to New Orleans. Was that a judgment of God? Well, first of all, I have to say 
we have to be careful with providential history when it's not explicitly stated in the scriptures. First of all, we need to remember that if the scriptures are difficult to interpret, so is God's providence. And we need to be mindful as we think about these things that we not fall into the error of the disciples. You remember the disciples presumed that they knew the providence of God when they asked Jesus about a man who was paralyzed. And they said, whose fault is this? Is it his fault? Is it his sins or is it the sins of his parents that cause him to be in this condition. Now, if that be true of an individual man, I think we should heed that caution as well with regard to multiple people to say, well, whose fault was Katrina? Was it the people of New Orleans or was it their fathers? Well, we don't know for certain. God's ways are inscrutable and we have to be careful on the one hand to make pronouncements as to the mind of God in providential history. Sometimes our TV preachers are not so careful and they will uh, say that this or that was definitely, you know, the judgment of God. Jesus noted, you remember when the Tower of Siloam fell, uh, that he warned the survivors uh, not to think that those who died in the calamity were worse than those who survived. So we have to be careful. Let me say that. But, having said that, let's put some weight on the other end of the seesaw. While we're being careful, let's be mindful also that God is sovereign over calamity. Amos chapter 3, verse 6 says this. If a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people tremble? And then, here's the part I want you to really hear. If a calamity occurs in a city, has not the Lord done it? Now, we say that because we know all that comes to pass is done by God. What we have to be careful of is why it was done in the interpretation. Here's another passage for us to consider. For behold, I am am beginning to work calamity in this city, which is called by my name. And shall you be completely free from punishment? You will not be free from punishment, for I am summoning a sword against all the inhabitants of the earth. That's from Jeremiah 25, verse 29. This is what I think we can say, though, given those two propositions. And that is this. Historical calamities are a reminder that God does judge sometimes in history. Augustine teaches us in a book I'm reading this year on the city of God that if there were no historical judgments in history, man would be tempted to think that there is no justice, there is no God. But the reason God doesn't bring all of his vengeance uh, now is that there would be uh, nothing to wait for. And so God gives historical judgments When in his wisdom, he sees it fit to do. And he sometimes allows the wicked to prosper and not bring judgments on them and reserve it for the future, for the final day of judgment. In either case, when we see such calamities, we do need to be reminded of the fear of the Lord, though, because even uh, 
we, we are reminded that we're not any better than those who are under the judgment. And therefore, we have reason to amend our ways when we seek judgments or calamities befalling other cities or nations. We need to recognize that the Lord could bring such things to ourselves. And what is it in our own life that might provoke it? What does conscience and scripture convict us of? What about our going after other gods? Have we made materialism a god? Have we neglected the poor? Do we not pray for the welfare of the church? Have we not sought to love our brother or our, even our enemy as ourself? Uh, have we not kept the Lord's day? Have we gone uh, astray from the faith, having loved this present world? What, what is it that we might need to think about in our own life? Have we allowed things to slide in our families that we should not be allowing to slide Things that we did not permit when we were younger Christians. But now, because we're resting on past laurels, uh, we're uh, allowing to happen. Let me move on to, secondly, the command. Jesus here tells us the sign will be the armies surrounding Jerusalem. When they see the Romans and their legions surrounding Jerusalem, they will know that God has given the city up for destruction. So what does Jesus tell them to do? Well, in verse 21 and 23, Jesus instructs the early church that they must flee. He gives them a command to leave immediately. Now, if you have your Bible, look at verse 21 with me and then verse 23. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains so that those who are in the, the region, the tribe of Judah, when they, when they see and hear of the Romans coming, flee to the mountains. Then he notes those who are in the midst of the city must leave and those who are in the country. So he deals with everybody, the city, the suburbs and the country folks. And no matter who you are, city, suburb or country, uh, when you see the Roman army coming, Basically, drop what you're doing and go. And then he says in verse 23, woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. Because why? Well, because it's very difficult with young kids to get out quickly. And he says, for there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people. So Jesus is giving instruction to his early church what to do in this time of emergency. They are to leave immediately the city, its environs and those in the countryside. The folks in the countryside are not to take refuge in the walls of Jerusalem. Those who are in Jerusalem, they are not to stay behind the walls in Jerusalem. They are to leave the city. It is safer for them to leave. Instinct might say get behind the walls of the city. But Jesus is making it clear that the city has been given over to destruction. God is not going to deliver Jerusalem, Jesus is saying, as he did in the days of Hezekiah. The urgency, Jesus points out, is great. In fact, in Matthew's account of Jesus teaching on this subject, Jesus says that folks in the field 
were not to run even into the house to get their stuff and then to try and make their escape. But they were to run directly from the field out. Now, I would say a few things about this. Number one, we have to look at the kindness of Christ, that he would warn his early church in a time of judgment, that God would not sweep away the righteous with the wicked. That the Lord loves his people and has warned them. Something else for us to consider, I think, by way of application. And that is that there are times for Christians to leave. Jesus would say, if you are persecuted in one city, that they were free to leave to go to the next. Now, there are times where one might want to stay for the sake of the gospel. But also we see that it is lawful for Christians to leave, to be wise, to be discerning, to be alert, to understand the times. And if the danger is of such nature to to go and to leave. Again, we we. Uh, this this is something that's difficult that pastors have to struggle with, um, you know. For example, in the Middle Ages, when a plague came, okay, a lot of Christians, what did they do? Of course, they left. What do you do as a pastor? Well, some of your people have are sick with the plague. So this creates a tension sometimes uh, for pastors. Pastors, kind of like captains of the ship, kind of have to be the last, you know, out. Um, but that is not to say that Christians in general don't have a liberty uh, to, to go. Also, I would say this simply for your own thinking about how you and I live in this world. And that is there seems to be a blessing of traveling lightly in this world. That is, um, those of you who maybe might chafe that you don't have more of this world in terms of possessions or family or children. Um, you might consider that that also can be a mercy in a time of distress. Uh, how difficult it is for those with families and with young ones, Jesus says. This is why Jesus says, woe to those who are nursing babes in that day. The difficulty is compounded by the blessings of this world. And there is something to what the Puritans said, traveling lightly to heaven. Uh, there is a, a blessing of not being encumbered with uh, so much. Especially in a, in a day of distress, something we in the West probably need to think about. But then uh, my final point is coming from verse 22 to 24. We'll spend a little bit of time here. And that is theologically, Jesus makes it clear that this is a judgment of God. Here's a situation, boys and girls, where we don't have to wonder. We don't have to suspend um, a judgment personally ourselves, because Jesus tells us that what's happening to Jerusalem clearly is a judgment of God against the city and the people of Jerusalem. And if you have your Bible, look at verse 22. Jesus says, because these are days of vengeance. Now, whose vengeance? Well, God's vengeance. So that all things which are written will be fulfilled. Notice that this is preordained by God. God has determined it. It's going to come to pass. There is nothing that is going to thwart 
this from happening. God has already decreed and determined the destruction. You say, what if God has decreed a destruction? What, and, you know, for us, if we just don't know it. Um, I'll speak more about that in a minute. But the first thing we do is we repent anyway. Because we, God may save you individually, even though you know, the, the city or the state is destroyed in a corporate sense. Now, in verse 24, Jesus goes on, he says, they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now, what is our best protection for us as a nation, for us as a community, as a city, as a county, as a state of Georgia? Is it the U.S. military? Is it a big defense budget? Is it better leadership in Washington? I would answer no. That is none of the above is our best protection. What is it? It is putting our faith in the Lord and living out the Christian life in evangelical obedience before him. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Faith in the Lord. Trust in Jesus Christ. Repenting of your sins. Trusting and promoting the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the best defense, not just for an individual soul, but for a family and for a city and for a state. I don't know why Christians are so reluctant to make those applications. The Puritans never were reluctant to make the applications of Jesus's resurrected lordship to the state. And yet so many Christians today, it's like, oh, well, it's good for you as an individual. It'll be good for your family, but it's not good for your city somehow or for your nation. That somehow there aren't, you know, national and political implications for the resurrection of Jesus. The best hope for LaGrange is Jesus Christ. Even if God brings a judgment on our community or on our nation through some terrible conflict or calamity, through uh, economic disaster, through some kind of plague, some kind of virus that is resistant to modern medicines. Uh, even then we should seek out the Lord Jesus Christ. Should, should the Lord take us in that calamity, we can say with the promise of the word of God, precious in the sight of God shall be your death. Precious in the sight of the Lord will be those who die in the Lord. God will make distinctions in death among his people from those that are outside of Christ. So we always should be seeking Christ, not just to be delivered from temporal calamities, but from the eternal one. You will be brought safely and happily into heaven and you will reign with Jesus Christ until the end of history and until the final judgment. As I mentioned a moment ago, I'm reading The City of God by Augustine. This is a really neat book, fascinating book. Don't let the thousand pages uh, dissuade you <laughs> because it's a, really it's an, it's an apologetic and it, it's an amazing apologetic. Augustine is basically writing a defense for Christianity in light of the fall of Rome, because a lot of the Romans were saying, you see, this is what happens. We 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 forsook the ancient Roman gods of our fathers and we made Christianity, the religion of the empire. And look what happened to us. They were they were arguing that that the calamity 
that they had experienced at the hands of the barbarian invasions, um, it was it was the fault of the Christians. And so Augustine writes this in response uh, to that, to those who would blame. And, and Augustine, um, you know, acknowledges that some Christians did get caught up in the calamity and they died. But Augustine also says that, that when you consider calamities uh, and falls of empires in the past, what was remarkable is how much was spared by the barbarians. In fact, that the barbarians had reverence for the church buildings and that those who sought refuge in them were spared. Unlike Nebuchadnezzar didn't spare people who sought refuge in the temple. Here, uh, Augustine said that God did uh, preserve people, even those who were complaining about the church, who sought refuge in the church and had their lives spared. God was pleased to spare their lives. But I do want to say this, and this is really the most, I think, important part. As I said in the first point, we know that a final judgment is coming. Historical judgments of God are but kind of a type of what will take place. To take the terrible day of the destruction of Hiroshima and to multiply that day after day after day forever, where the wrath and the fire and the brimstone of God against sinners never ceases is a sobering and terrible thought. And it should, I think, awaken those of us who have a tendency to become careless in our Christian life. Those who are tempted to fall away through carelessness. God's judgment is awful and it will not slumber forever. The, the great and terrible day of the Lord is coming for all who continue and insist to continue in their sins rather than trusting in the love of Jesus Christ who died for them. Who gave his blood for them to be pardoned of sin and to receive his righteousness, his obedience. Uh, Jesus tells us as a church that we are commanded to be alert. We are to be watchful and prayerful. And we, we need to see to it that we don't fall into temptation. One of the dangers of prosperity and God showing mercy by withholding his judgment is what? We tend to think there will be, never be a judgment. This is a great temptation also, especially for those outside of Jesus Christ. That the wicked actually will often think there will never be a judgment. Because God doesn't bring it. But for those of us in Jesus Christ, here's the warning for us. That many men who begin well often don't finish well in their lives in Christ. They begin with zeal. They begin with earnest. They begin with great intentions. But they don't persevere. Cares, concerns with life encumber them. Things change. And they begin no longer to stay awake and alert. They fall asleep. And they forget about the day of judgment. They forget. They fall asleep with regard to the spiritual needs of the nations. With regard to the sanctification of their own soul. And what happens? Many times sin and calamity overtake them. And their second condition is worse than their first. Just this past week, I've had to think about and talk with others about two friends of mine in the ministry 
neither of whom are in the ministry today. And it didn't overtake them just all at once. It was gradual and in many ways. Many men begin on a narrow path, but they are, their course gets diverted. And this is our danger. Pride, materialism, drunkenness, worldliness, gluttony, pleasure, adultery, steer people away from God and from Jesus Christ. And they no longer see a great day of judgment anymore that once, maybe earlier in their life, sobered them. Maybe the thoughts of God's final judgment kept them from sins that otherwise they might have been persuaded to enter in. They no longer see a great day of judgment anymore. The threatenings of God no longer cause them to tremble or they never even causes them to examine their soul. And what happens? They become hard men, prayerless men, careless men. And men who finally are fit for nothing but fire. Fruitless men. And God said that you who are Christians need to take heed. If God didn't spare the Jews who were fruitless, but cut them off in order to take you a wild branch, a wild Gentile and graft you into the covenant tree of grace. If God did not spare the natural branches, but cut them off and threw them into the fire in order to make room for you. How much more will he not spare you if you do not bear fruit for Jesus? You know, friends, if you're just resting in justification alone and you're not doing anything about your sanctification, you really need to wonder whether you're justified. If, if your whole Christian life is nothing but justification. You don't understand salvation. Salvation is not just justification. Just justification is the foundation. It, it is the, you know, it is the, 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 that stone upon which the rest of the house is built. The work of Christ and trusting in Christ alone. But a justified sinner is a person who's concerned about holiness, is concerned about every idle word that he'll have to give an account for on the day of judgment. He is concerned about private obedience to the Lord. Jesus came to save us from our sins. Not just save us from the consequence of the sin. And then I would say, for those of you who may have not yet been converted to Christ. That you are even this day on a beautiful day, sun is shining and there seems to be no worry in the sky. If you're outside of Jesus Christ, you are in danger daily, despite all the blessings and mercies God gives you every day. God causes it to rain on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. He causes it to the sun to shine on both camps. He gives food at the Piggly Wiggly or the Publix or the Aldi's or wherever you go to shop. And, and, and both partake of all these blessings of God. But what you as an unconverted person outside of Jesus Christ need to realize is that you are living in a dangerous and precarious situation. While you're receiving all the blessings of God. You need to realize, though, that if you continue in your unconverted state, 
while you're receiving all these mercies and your heart should suddenly stop. There's no remedy for you. You enter into eternity and the eternity is for ever, of course, and you cannot cross from one side to the other. That is, to put it another way, the wrath and the vengeance of the Roman army pales in comparison to the wrath of the Lamb of God. Now, you might think the idea of a wrathful lamb to be an oxymoron, but it's a term that the Bible itself uses in the book of Revelation. And if your view of Jesus is that it is only a Jesus of mercy, you don't have a biblical Jesus. You have an idol. Jesus did drive out the money changers and Jesus is bringing judgment on those who persist in their independence of him. In fact, John tells us in the book of Revelation that unsaved men will even call on mountains to fall on them and hills to cover them in the day of judgment. They would rather be under a mountain that collapses on them. You know, I remember Sinclair Ferguson after 9-11 making the illustration you know, of people choosing to be in the building when it collapses rather than to have to face God in their sins. What do you do? Well, you need to make haste to Christ. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He became a man and he died on the cross for sinners, not for righteous people, but for sinners. Everyone who believes and trusts in Jesus Christ receives two things. One, you get forgiveness of all your sins. Two, you get the righteousness you need to stand before God. You can't earn your righteousness before God. You can't stand before God through the works that you have done. So you have to put your trust. This is where I was speaking of justification earlier. That is the starting point. You must be justified only by the works of Jesus Christ through faith in him alone, not of yourself. You have to clothe yourself in his righteousness that you would be delivered from God's justice. That's how it works. God's justice is perfect. His law is perfect and he demands 100 percent perfect obedience. Otherwise, you don't make the cut. If you don't have 100 percent perfect obedience, you can't make it into heaven. Well, then who can be saved, Pastor? Well, that's the point. None of us, except by the grace of God through Christ. It's Jesus' perfect obedience that gains us admission. Jesus' cloak is his righteousness, and he gives it to you for protection. And he says, put this on. This is mine, but I'm giving it to you if you'll wear it. So here we have to say this. Don't do this. If now you're beginning to think about the day of judgment, here's what you don't do. Don't seek safety in reforming your outward life. That is, put it another way, don't seek safety in your self-righteousness. By saying, well, okay, what I'll do to get favor with God is I'll pray more. I'll be consistent in my church attendance, my giving, my tithing, my rule keeping, my external obedience with regard to adultery, theft and murder. That's what I'll count on to stand in the day of judgment. That's what I'll do. God will accept me on those terms. No, that won't work. Only the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Don't seek righteousness in homeschooling, family devotions, private Bible reading, secret prayer, 
comprehension and articulation of orthodox theology. Friends, you might need all of that and above, but all that's to lead you to Christ. It's not supposed to be a substitute for Jesus Christ. Don't seek righteousness and feelings of superiority over other people, especially profligate sinners. Don't seek righteousness in not being like others. I thank thee, God, that I'm not like other men, especially that tax collector back there. Let Jesus Christ be your only hope in this life and for the world that is to come. Let his righteousness, his obedience be your shelter, your protection from the wrath of God. That's the only safe place to go. All other foundations are sinking sand and they'll wash away when that storm does come and that storm is coming. Amen.